Hello friends and welcome back to the, I don't even know which episode this podcast is on, to be quite honest with you guys. I took a break from last week, senior year is really kicking me where it counts. Senior year is almost over, I don't even know how many days there are, but getting there people, getting there. Um, I know you missed me, so here I am making another episode, another podcast of Behind the Mic. Um, so let's let's get down to business. Let's talk history. This week we're talking about Monday the 28th through Sunday the 3rd of November. Also, if you hear squeaking in the back... Don't mind that. That's just the chair. I can't seem to make it stop squeaking, and I keep moving because that's my personality. So, Monday the 28th, 1965, St. Louis Gateway Arch is completed. You know, I would really like to go there one day. It's 630. 30 feet high. I'm afraid of heights, so I don't know if I would actually get on it. That's the problem. I want to go there because it's it's a uh, it's uniquely known. It's it's known all throughout America. Um, the creator, the guy who the guy who created it, his name was Aero Sarinen. I probably pronounced that completely wrong. But he was Finnish-born and American-educated. It was erected to commemorate President Thomas Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase of 1803. It also celebrated St. Louis's central role in the rapid westward expansion. Um, Manifest Destiny, we all know about that. Um, that was about 1840s, so this was the precursor of that. This was about Louisiana all the way through the Dakotas and Idaho, that whole area where that is now. That's where the Louisiana Purchase was. That's the land it occupied. It was purchased because Napoleon was fighting a war, um, and he needed money. So he went over to America, Thomas Jefferson was like, Hey man, I really need to fight this war, but I'm kind of broke. You want to buy this land? And Jefferson was very hesitant, yet his advisors said, go ahead and make the purchase. And so at the last minute, he made the purchase. Uh, Eero won a national competition to design the monument, honoring the spirit of the West Western pioneers. A national competition or nationwide like how do you, I can barely win half the stuff here at school let alone any contest I entered I entered the uh, library uh, library sweepstakes thing they were posting around and I don't know how many people entered but I won I won the two the the prize where the director wipes out your uh, fees i won that i don't know how i won that literally i don't 
So to win a nationwide competition, to put that in perspective, that was pretty impressive. Uh, he couldn't. He did not see it get completed because he died of a brain tumor, and yeah. Yeah, he died of a brain tumor in 1961. Yeah, um, so he didn't get to see he didn't get to see his creation finished. Pretty much, it was relatively inexpensive. Uh, it cost less than 15 million dollars. I don't know how much that is today, but in 1965. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of money, but fifteen million, and that's really not that much. Moving on to eighteen eighty six, the Statue of Liberty was dedicated as a gift of friendship from the French people to America. Statue of Liberty dedicated it was a gift of friendship from the people of France under the presidency of Grover Cleveland, the only president to be elected twice non-consecutively. Uh, originally, it was called Liberty Enlightening the World, but then it was changed to Statue of Liberty. It commemorated the Franco-American Franco alliance during the American Revolution. Uh, the sculptor who sculpted the Statue of Liberty uh, was French. His name was Frederick Auguste Bartholdi. Again, I'm probably butchering all of these names. It is 151 feet high. The steel supports were created by Eugene Emmanuel Violet, Violet Le Duc. And the only one I'm going to get right today is Alexander Gustav Eiffel. Like, the creator of the Eiffel Tower helped sculpt and help build the Statue of Liberty. It is called the New Colossus, and there's a plaque on the New Colossus. Well, no, actually, the poem, the sonnet that Emery La Emma Lazarus created is called New Colossus. It's Everyone's heard of it. it the, po the sonnet is, um, I'm going to read it to you now. Not like the bronzen giant of Greek flame, flame, fame, words are hard today, my friends. Not like the bronzen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand, a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore 
in these the homeless tempest tossed to me I lift my lamp beside the golden door so I, I kind of butchered that but you can always go and look it up if need be it's a very famous sonnet that was written for the Statue of Liberty you know um, and then 1892 Ellis Island which Ellis Island opened next to Bedloe Island, where the Statue of Liberty is located. And that was open for 32 years, and overall 12 million immigrants passed through Ellis Island. The Statue of Liberty was made a national monument in 1924. It is the symbol of America. It is the symbol of New York City. Uh, overall... It's just a impressive piece of architecture that will be around for a long time, and it already has. Uh, 1998, President Bill Clinton signs the Digital Millennium Copyright Act into law. So the story goes, Prince, the singer, the artist behind Purple Rain, amongst many others, he happened upon a 29-second home video of a toddler converting to a barely audible background soundtrack of his 1984 hit, Let's Go Crazy, and instigated a high-profile legal showdown involving YouTube, the Universal Music Group, and a Pennsylvania housewife named Stephanie Lenz. The act involved a piece of federal legislation that has helped establish a legal... No, this, this case involved a piece of federal legislation that has helped establish a legal minefield surrounding the use of digital music in the age of the internet. So, before we had YouTube, we had Napster, and that was destroyed because of laws before this one. And rightfully so, because artists, artists are artists for a reason. You cre that that's your property. That is your intellectual piece of property. So this law was written in order to strengthen existing federal copyright protections against new threats posed by the internet and by the democratization of high technology. There is a piece. There is a provision called the safe harbor provision. It grant uh, it granted companies operating flat platforms for user contributed content protection from liability for acts of copyright infringement by those users. So how I understood it, I could be wrong, but how I understood the act is basically if you go on YouTube. And unless you're trying to extort money or you're trying to pass that song or that content as your own, it, the artist can't sue or, like, no one can really sue you. But they can uh, explicitly authorize a copyright holders to issue takedown notices to individuals or companies believed to be engaged in infringement use of copyrighted work. It helped protect work on the internet more or less is what it's trying to say because 1998 two years later would turn into the year 2000 and everybody flipped out because y2k they thought was going to happen the destruction of the world the new millennium 
apocalypse, you know, technology, Terminator was going to take over, more or less. In 1919, Congress enforces prohibition in which they passed the Volstead Act. The Volstead Act was pretty much, it provided the law enforcement a prohibit, prohibition, and it included the creation of a special unit of the Treasury Department. Uh, the, what law? The 18th Amendment was prohibition. And it pretty much said the sale, the creation, the use, anything to do with alcohol was prohibited. And this act, the Volstead Act, pretty much created enforcement units to take down anybody who disobeyed the 18th Amendment, which later was repealed due to the 21st Amendment. Moving on to Tuesday the 29th. Uh, 1929, this is when the Great Depression began. 1929, the stock market crashed on Black Tuesday. On that day, overall, investors have traded 16,410,030 shares on the New York Stock Exchange. Exchange. NYSE. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors, and the stock tickers ran hours behind because the machinery could not handle the tremendous volume of trading. So this was its peak, this was its pinnacle. The New York Stock Exchange, this was the best they've ever done. But at the same time, they couldn't keep up. The tickers, the clocks, everything, people just could not keep up with the demand, more or less. So it crashed. But it's, that's not the only reason why it crashed. Wild speculation, low wages, the proliferation of debt, a weak agriculture, and an excess of large bank loans that could not be liquidated also contributed to why it failed, why the stock exchange and why the Great Depression came about. By 1933, nearly half of America's banks had failed and unemployment was approaching 15 million people which was 30% of the workforce at the time. That's that's crazy. So who could imagine who could have imagined this was going to happen and who can imagine that this could still happen today even though we have laws and regulations we have dipped below a certain point of uh, to where it could have almost happened back in 2007 and 8 we had the great recession who could have who could have said we weren't going to have a great depression the housing market crashed and that was that was crazy 1901 president Mc, william mckinley's assassin is ex, uh, executed uh, william mckinley was shaking hands in a long line that uh, while he was at the Pan American Exhibition in Buffalo, New York. He was at this exhibition shaking hands. When this 28-year-old anarchist, Leon Zogolz, I don't, again, so many names I cannot pronounce. It's crazy. Uh, he approached McKinley with a gun, but it was concealed in a handkerchief in his right hand. Yet, I want to point out, William McKinley was nice enough 
he was an, a, one of the nicer presidents because of this, I think. He thought, McKinley thought that Leon had a physical defect uh, on, his, uh, on his right hand, so he kindly reached for his left hand. Leon fired two shots into the president's chest, and the president, as he was going down, allegedly said, be careful how you tell my wife. And Leon almost got a third bullet off, but the his guards and everybody around him rested to the ground before he could get a third shot off. The president was rushed to surgery, and he seemed to be on the mend. But the condition worsened, and he died from gangrene that remained hidden undetected in the internal wound. So gangrene seemed to kill a lot of the presidents if they were assassinated, other than... Lincoln, of course, you know, Lincoln was shot in the back of the head, and he was, gangrene didn't get to him, they just could not save him from the bullets that scarred him, pretty much. Uh, so, also, William McKinley's last words after he survived a couple of days were, um, were those to a hymn called Near God to Thee. After he died, Theodore Roosevelt, his vice president, was sworn in as president. Uh, Leon was a Polish immigrant that worked in a steel mill. He was educated in socialism and anarchy, so he turned out to be a socialist and an anarchist. Uh, he killed McKinley because the president was the head of what he thought was the uh, corrupt government, which around that time... A lot of the government was corrupt. You had the Teapot Dome scandal, which I would have talked about last week, but I took a hiatus for the week due to homework. But I would have talked about that. But up to then, after Reconstruction 1877, things kind of got out of hand. Uh, you had the Industrial Revolution, a lot of greed, a lot of corruption. So Leon thought the president was the head of the corrupt government. His last words were, I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the working people. Uh, Marxists was about classless societies and work, and everybody was working hard people, so he shot him because he thought McKinley was the enemy of the good people. Leon was executed via electric chair, a little archaic, but it's what they did back then. And allegedly, Thomas Edison filmed it, which I found pretty fascinating. Moving on to Wednesday the 30th, 1938, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio play is broadcasted. Uh, a movie came out about, I don't know, 12 years ago, also based on the book, based on a lot of other criteria, War of the Worlds was a movie about 12 or so years ago. I think it had Brad Pitt in it. Yeah. Uh, but before that, it was a radio play. Orson Welles was only 23 years old at this time, but he's been in radio for several years, and he was most notably the voice of the shadow and the hit mystery of the same name. He was he did not plan this as a radio hoax and had little idea of the horror it would cause. 
So, as uh, I'm going to get into it, but a little preface before that. War of the Worlds was a radio, was broadcasted on the radio, and it pretty much conducted mass hysteria, mass panic. Because people did not know that this was going to happen. So, it, it was the show began at 8 o'clock, prime time in the golden age of radio. 8 o'clock, prime time. But, most people listened to the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy, on NBC before. They listened, they listened to him before. And only tuned in to CBS where Orson Welles' play was being broadcasted at 8.12 after the comedy sketch ended. 12 minutes after 8 o'clock. By then, the story was well underway. So, 12 minutes, you missed a lot of stuff if you switched over. At the beginning, Wells introduced his radio play with a spoken introduction, followed by an announcer reading the, a, a weather report. So, like any other play, you know, any other broadcast, an announcer's reading a weather report. The announcer abandoned the storyline and took listeners to the uh, Meridian Room and the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, uh, where you will be entertained by music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Okay, seems to be good. And then the announcer broke in to report that Professor Farrell of the Mount Jenning Observatory had detected explosive had detected an explosion on the planet Mars. Things are going downhill at this point. Dance music continued, uh, continued, followed by another interruption in which, led, in which listeners were informed that large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field. The announcer was at the crash site describing a Martian emerging from the large metallic cylinder. This whole play, okay, it's a play, but they, they presented it in a way that was extremely realistic. As if somebody on Q102 or WEBN or whatever radio broadcast station that you listen to, Pandora or something, it was like if that just cut away, and or like the news, like the news today, it would cut away to an emergency broadcast and explain that these aliens were taken over. So the FCC investigated the unorthodox program, but they found no law was broken, uh, which was funny because it caused mass panic. The network did agree, though, to be more cautious in their programming in the future. This was one of the first moments in history that I learned about, and it was crazy because I don't think you could really get away with it today, but back then... 1938, the radio, yeah. Last of Wednesday, the 30th, was 1974, Muhammad Ali wins the Rumble in the Jungle. He was 32 years old, and this was his second time winning the belt. He KO'd 25-year-old champ George Foreman in the 8th round. We all know who George Foreman is. If you don't, look him up. He named all of his children George, even his little girl. Crazy. 
seven years before this, he Ali lost the title when the government accused him of draft dodging and the Boxing Commission took his license, which essentially a lot of people thought was true because his real name at the time was Cassius Clay. He changed his name to Muhammad Ali because he claimed that he was an avid follower of Islam. He was an avid follower of the religion. He, he claimed to be Muslim. A lot of people did not believe that. Now, then again, you know, everybody has their own beliefs and whatnot, but it went two ways. He claimed that that was his uh, English-American slave name, and so he changed it to Muhammad Ali to get back with his roots, get back to his uh, Muslim past. But a lot of people, in America especially, did not believe him, and so... And he burned his draft card, and they claimed he was draft dodging, and the boxing commission took his license. Eventually, seven years later, in 1974, along that time, he got his license back, and somehow, and everything, and he won his belt back. And Ali's victory made him only the second dethroned champ in history to regain his belt. So he would have had it this whole time, more or less, but it was stripped from him. Thursday the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posts 95 Thesis. This is one of my favorite moments in history. So, Martin Luther condemned the excesses and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church especially the papal practice of asking payment for the forgiveness of sins, which we call indulgences. So pretty much, if you slept around, if you were an adulterer, if you m murdered somebody in an alleyway, or you, know, you did something heinous against the Catholic Church, you could buy one of these pieces of paper that said you were forgiven. You physically paid money for your sins to be forgiven. Martin Luther did not like that. But at the same time, there was a Dominican priest named Johann Tetzel, who was commissioned by the Archbishop of Mainz and Pope Leo X uh, to walk around and fundraise. So pretty much the Catholic Church at that time needed money. And one of the biggest draws were the indulgences and a lot of our sculpt or a lot of catholic churches sculptors a lot of their paintings around this time were only possible because of the money they were making off of these indulgences and off of the really immoral illegal activities that they were doing at this time uh they eventually changed their ways but at this time uh, it was they were in the midst of a major fundraiser campaign in Germany to finance renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Prince Frederick III, the wise, had banned the role of indulgences in Wittenberg, which was a place in Germany. 
But many of the church members still traveled to get these indulgences, and then they returned to show Martin Luther, and therefore were no longer no longer required to repent. They didn't. They they their sins were forgiven, and they were no longer required to repent according to the Catholic Church, which really angered Martin Luther. So. He wrote the 95 Theses and ended up nailing them to the biggest door of the church in Germany. And these 95 Theses were translated into Latin, or from Latin to German, and they were distributed widely across Europe, if not Germany. A copy happened to make it to Rome and efforts to make Luther change. And so efforts were made to make him change. Yet he refused to stay silent. In 1521, Pope Leo X, Pope Leo X, he formally excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church, but he still chose not to recant, recant his message that these indulgences were horrible. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, Charles V of Germany, issued a famous letter, a famous law, a famous code called the Edict of Worms. Worms is a place in Germany. He ordered the Edict of Worms, which declared Luther an outlaw and a heretic, and essentially gave permission for anyone to kill him without any consequences. Can you imagine that? Uh, Luther began working on the trans German translation of the Bible, which took 10 years. And then... The word Protestant first appeared in 1529 uh, when Charles V revoked a provision that allowed the ruler of each German state to choose whether or not they would enforce the Edict of Worms. Pretty much Charles V in 1529 said, yeah, no, uh, you're going to have to enforce this and I don't care if you like it he would be the first person to challenge and to introduce the Protestant Reformation. In 1864, the U.S. Con US Congress admits Nevada as the 36th state. Now, there's no backstory to that. We all know about Nevada. We all know about the gambling and all the other necessary stuff that Nevada has and we all know why Nevada or Nevada yeah Nevada became a state come on so next on the list Thursday happened to be Halloween as well so I'm gonna go over a little bit of the history of Halloween if you guys don't mind, of course. So, Halloween. Halloween originated with the ancient Celtic people. It was an ancient Celtic festival called Samhain. It's when people would 
light bonfires and wear costumes uh, to ward off ghosts and spirits. In the 8th century, 700s, Pope Gregory III uh, designated November 1st, pretty much the day after Halloween, as a time to honor all the saints. Uh, and then eventually, and then the evening before November the 1st was called All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween. So 2,000 years ago, uh, the Celts were located near the islands and near the places that Ireland, the UK, and northern France sits. Uh, Samhain, what, they, they celebrated their New Year's on November 1st. So pretty much when Pope Gregory III made it a time to celebrate and to honor all the saints. So this day also, this day marked the end of the summer and it marked uh, the end of the harvest. But it also marked the beginning, it also marked the beginning of the cold winter and just pretty much it marked the beginning of when it started to get dark and started to get really gloomy. Which, it also lent itself the association with human death. So the night before New Year's, which was November 1st, uh, the night before, they would have this celebration called Samhain, as I have said, and it was believed that on this day, uh, they believed ghosts and the dead returned to Earth. So, outwardly spirits made it, um, it made it easier for druids to tell the future. And at the time, the Celts were a people of the land. They were people who depended on the land to give them food, to give them their future, to give them their purpose in life. Without that, they were dead, you know. So they would sacrifice um, animals and they would have huge sacred bonfires and just overall just wear costumes and attempted to tell each other's future. It just pretty much was a festival of warning off ghosts and telling uh, futures and just overall a time of celebration to go into the dead dark times that was of winter. So in 43 AD the Roman Empire conquered the majority of what was the Celtic or Celtic territory and there were two Roman festivals that went along with that and that they that the Romans brought with them. One was called Feralia, which the Romans uh, commemorated the Romans commemorated the passing of their dead. So it was tradition to celebrate that. The second day was the day to honor Pom. Pomona, 
who was the Roman goddess of fruit and trees, kind of like an Artemis, the Greeks' version of Artemis, or the Greeks' version of Demeter, the goddess of uh, pretty much the harvest and pretty much of trees and fruit and stuff like that. So the symbol of this goddess was an apple, and when they combined it with Samhain, it pretty much the tradition of bobbing for apples came about. That's where we believe the bobbing of apples came about. So fast forwarding to May 13th, 609 AD. Pope Boniface the Fourth dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honor of all Christian martyrs. So that's where we get All Martyrs Day and the Western Church. Pope Gregor Pope Gregory III, as I have said, later expanded it to All Saints, and it moved the observations to November 1st. In the 9th century, in the 800s, Christianity influence spread to the Celtic lands. And then in 1000 AD, the church made November 2nd All Souls Day to honor the dead. So this is pretty much three days of honoring the dead and honoring to get rid of ghosts. Uh, many historians and many people believe today that the church was attempting to replace Celtic festivals with dead with related church sanctioned holidays, which makes sense, you know? Next you have uh, All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to Samhain. If you guys are listening, it's pretty much connecting the dots, as I have said. It's, uh, it's pretty much the Celtic people celebrated this holiday of uh, days getting shorter and nights getting longer and the harvest not doing so well, so they wanted to help out their future. But then the Romans took over, and then the church took over, and they attempted to christianize the people and help them christianize themselves when they combined holidays and then it became an american sensation later on it it came to america but it was extremely limited in the colonial new england because of the rigid protestant belief systems as i have talked about less than 10 minutes ago about martin luther here we are talking about Protestants, Protestants again. But it was more common in Maryland and the southern colonies. The beliefs, customs of the different European ethnic groups and the American Indians meshed. Um, and Halloween became distinctly American, uh, Americanized later on during the colonial age, you know, 1600, 1700s. The first celebrations were play parties, and they were public events held to celebrate the harvest. Again, harvest. Neighbors would share series of the de uh, stories of the dead. They would tell fortunes. They would dance, and they would sing. So at this point, it's become it's coming full circle. So they would tell ghost stories, uh, mischiefs, uh, mischief making of all kinds. And then in the middle of the 19th century, the 1800s, 
Uh, they would hold annual autumn festivities and festivals where in certain parts of the country, not everywhere. And then the second half of the 19th century, new immigrants came over. Who came over, you ask? That's a good question. The Irish. So the descendants of the Celts because of the, the potato famine. So overall, it has come full circle. To summarize Halloween for you guys, again, for the final time, the Celts, uh, the Celts held it as a celebration to honor the harvest, honor their dead, and the lines of New Year of the New Year blurred, and they believed ghosts and spirits would come back to Earth. So they were like bonfires. That's the Irish. That's the Celts, pretty much. So the Romans took over and tried to enforce enforce two different holidays. And then the Catholic Church took over and pretty much said, November 1st is the day to honor our dead. And November 2nd was everybody's dead. So before that, they would celebrate. Eventually came to America, and it started to die out a little bit because of the other religious holidays and all the other religions and the strict codes that the colonies had. But when the immigrants, i.e. Irish, came over, that's when they started to pick it up again. So that's really fascinating, or at least I found that fascinating, to find out what the roots of Halloween is. Moving on to Friday the 1st. Uh, 1512, Sist the Sistine Chapel ceiling opens to the public. Michelangelo Buonarroti, again, names. He was born in 1475 and was the son of the government, uh, son of a government administrator. He was an artist apprentice at the age of 13, and he was taken under the wing of Lorenzo de Medici. So a little background about the Medici family. One of the Medicis, like the head Medici, it's just also fun saying Medici. Uh, the head Medici became Pope. So if you ever heard of the Treaty of Tortoiseye, that was Medici uh, and the whole family. They were like the ma first mafia of Italy, first mafia of Florence and Rome. Uh, Lorenzo was the ruler of the Florentine Republic and a great patron of the arts. Uh, before Michelangelo worked on the Sixteen Chapel, he was already somewhat an accomplished artist. In 1498, he created the Pieta, and in 1504, he created David. We all know the sculpture of David. He was called to Rome by Pope Julius II in 1508 to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which was the chief consecrated space in the Vatican. Uh, for those who don't know what the Sistine Chapel is, if you've ever seen the picture of God and Adam, or the naked guy reaching out to God and touching of the fingers, that's what that is. It's a little piece, but it's like the most prolific of pieces. Um, he would even, It was called the creation of Adam. 
and then later on in 1534, he would be asked again to create something, um, create a masterpiece above the wall of the altar of the Sistine Chapel for Pope Paul III. And it was called The Last Judgment. So pretty much you see God and Jesus and you see the sinners and you see the angels and you see the final judgment, that piece. It's one of the more famous pieces. 1993, the European Union, or EU, goes into, the, it goes into effect. It strengthened Euro European Parliament, the creation of Central European Bank, and common and security policies of Europe. It also laid the groundwork for a single European currency, also known as the Euro. So, pretty much that's where the groundwork of the Euro came from. Uh, when it was created in 1993, 12 nations were originally signed. Great Britain, France, Germany, Irish Republic, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Denmark, Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Two years later, in 1995, Australia, Finland, and Sweden signed on. So... And now we all were hearing about the politics in the European Union today, how uh, Great Britain wants to leave the uh, EU and that whole process that's going on over there. 1765, Parliament enacts the Stamp Act. It was a taxation measure designed to raise revenue for British military operations in America. This was after the French and Indian War, which was 1754 to 1763, and Pontiac's Rebellions, which was 1763 to 64, and both of those were real costly for Great Britain, and they needed money. A year before that, they introduced the uh, Sugar Act, which was a high duty on refined sugar, but it was accepted by the colonies because it was a hidden tax within the importment of sugar and import of other needs. But the Stamp Act was a direct tax to the people, to the colonies. It forced colonists to use special stamped paper in the printing of newspapers, pamphlets, almanacs, and playing cards. Uh, it had a stamp embossed on all commercial and legal papers. So imagine going into a, uh, a place to get stamps or to mail a letter or anything that involved paper. Imagine paying a high tax. So if the thing was like $10, imagine to pay for like a $15 or like a $10 cost on tax on top of that. You wouldn't like it. So Samuel Adams organized a secret society called the Sons of Liberty and they organized to protest. Nine colonies sent representatives to New York where resolutions of rights and grievances were framed and sent to Parliament in King George III, yet the act still passed. It was boycotted and it was repealed a year later. Yet on the same exact date it was repealed, Parliament passed the Declaratory Act, which was no better and in fact it was worse because it asserted that the British government had free and total legislative power over the colonies. 1861 
George McClellan replaces Winfield Scott as Union General. I personally love George McClellan because I took a Civil War class in high school, and when our professor or teacher talked about him, he trashed him so bad. So McClellan graduated from West Point, and he was second in his class in 1846. He served under Winfield Scott in the Mexican-American War, 1846-1848. McClellan left the Army, left the military in 1857 for an engineering position uh, in which he became the president of the St. Louis and Cincinnati Railroad by the breakout of the Civil War, 1861. He was already this high, well-to-do person. He resigned and accepted to command the Ohio Volunteers, uh, and he became the Major General. Yet, he demonstrated brashness, pompicity, and arrogance toward many of the nation's political leaders and loudly complained about Scott. Literally, he complained about the guy he was under most of the time, and he treated the president, Abraham Lincoln, with utter content. So... He would always show up late uh, after he would after his army, the Union Army, would win. He'd show up late and he would write in his journal, "I did the best I could. I was the best. I was awesome." Yet he would always show up hours after the battle ended and they won or lost. So he would always blame his troops as well if they lost. The troops suck. They did this. They weren't good. Yet they win. He would take all the glory. So, one story also says that President Lincoln, his Secretary of State, William Seward, and his uh, Secretary of the Army, or of War, Secretary of War, Knox, uh, K-N-O-X, I forgot his first name, but his last name's Knox, because that's a cool last name. Abraham Lincoln had to fight a battle and command his own army himself. Yeah, they do call you the Commander-in-Chief, but he physically had to command an army when George McClellan would not show up for that fight. He was—he didn't know where he was at. He would cuss out the president. They got into a fist fight one time. Uh, eventually, his ultimate demise was when he won a battle against the Confederates and they retreated. So the Battle of Antietam, they won the Battle of Antietam. But he would not finish the Confederates off once and for all, and he lost his position in 18... He lost his position after that. He was stripped of generalhood. He was stripped of the army. He tried to go against Abraham Lincoln in the election of 64, but he lost. Saturday the 2nd, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his... Martin Luther King Day was created in 1983 by President Ronald Reagan. 1948, President Harry, Tr- uh, Harry Truman defeats Dewey. I think it's Thomas Dewey. He won just over 2 million of the popular votes. Political analysts were so behind his opponent, Dewey, that on election night, long before the votes were counted, the Chicago Tribune 
published an early edition with the headline Dewey defeats Truman. Big news. It was it was fake news, you guys. It was a scandal too. But we all know Harry S. Truman eventually won and he was one of the better presidents in the United States. Finally, on Sunday the 3rd, 2014, the One World Trade Center officially opens to New York City and the world. And it was built on site of the twin, where the Twin Towers used to sit. So, how that's a proverbial, you know, uh, explicit words to terrorists and those who want to attack the United States saying, we are America, we will stand brighter and bigger than you will ever, so will. So try attack us again, we will just create another monument. 1998, this is one of my personal favorite stories. Uh, former wrestler Jesse the Body Ventura is elected the governor of Minnesota and he eventually was renamed Jesse the governor Ventura he was a part of the reform party he was laid back and straight talking and he had a libertarian approach to his politics one of the people that voted for him said I voted for Jesse because he was the most honest and another person said if he doesn't know what he was if he doesn't know something he just says he doesn't know how many politicians can you say We'll, we'll do that. If we ask, let's say, I don't, I don't know who any of the Republicans are. Let's say we asked Pete Buttigieg or, or, Ocasio Cortez, whatever her name is. If we said, hey, do you know this answer? How many of these people, even Republicans, Democrats, how many people will say, I don't know, and still get elected? They always have to come up with an answer in today's politics. His motto when he was a a, a heel. And wrestling was win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. The final, yet not the least, is in 1964, Washington, D.C. residents casted their vote for president for the first time. It was helpful because it was helpful due to the 23rd Amendment, which was passed in 1961 which allowed citizens in D.C. could vote. Thank you guys for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe. Listen to all the other podcasters on this channel. Um, Please return next week sometime to listen to my next podcast. I won't be as busy. Hopefully, knock on wood. Um, Yeah, just thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, Sound off on Twitter, uh, Mountcast, my Twitter, my social media. You know who I am. My name's Jonathan Beard. Um, This has been Behind the Mic. Thank you for being so supportive. Keep listening. Recommend to friends. Recommend to family. Um, It's been a great 55 minutes talking to you guys. Please, please, please come back next week and have a great rest of your day. Signing out.